0: Good morning. I'm Alex Mosed, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant struggle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, Modern Monopolies. And uh, Uber announced earnings end of day yesterday. Um, And of course, you know what that means. The haters are out and they're coming after Uber. Um, Lyft had earnings uh, two weeks ago, maybe 10 days ago, and they announced that they were accelerating their path to profitability. They had, I think, set an expectation of 2021. They said, we think we could do this by the end of 2020. Uber beat. Uber beat on um, having less losses than was expected and what they had given guidance on. They actually increased uh, their revenue and, and growth outlook beyond what had been previously reported They beat on revenue. Um, All around, it was a very good um, uh, earnings report. We're going to dig into it. But first, let's look at what the news has reported about this. So, this was the thing that popped up for me on LinkedIn. Chief Executive Dara has outlined Uber's road to becoming profitable, which will happen in 2021. Its revenue increased 30% to $3.8 billion for the quarter, while its losses widened to $1.2 billion. Compared with 986 million this time last year. Sounds pretty bad, right? Wow, 1.2 billion. They are losing more money than they were losing a year ago. Wow, Uber is not in a good place. Um, Ooh, Uber lost 1.1 billion. Uber stock falls, but quarterly loss topped 1 billion. This is fake news. It's all fake news. Where did this $1.1, $1.2 billion number come from? It came from the fact that they give stock to their employees. And now the employees can sell that stock. You know, they give options to employees and you have to register. I think they have like a four or $500 million charge
1: uh, on this quarter as that being a cost. Right. And they had a much bigger charge on the prior quarter. So the loss was like several billion dollars. And that, of course, got headlines. But it was really this... Uh, right, the yes, share charge that was even bigger. So, that made what did
0: Uber actually lose in Q three five hundred eighty five million dollars, and the quarter before that six hundred fifty six million dollars. Relatively, that's like literally half the number that is being reported and in all the headlines. And oh, they're losing more money than a year ago. It's just false. I mean, there's no other way around this. This is just right. the, the operating false advertising. The
1: operating business is doing better than it was a year ago.
0: It's an accounting. It's an accounting thing. It's I like give stock based compensation. This is not a cash loss, right? This is right. The, purely op, the an operating accounting operating business metric.
1: lost $585 million, which is the number long term that if you're an investor, you should be keeping an eye on. Can the operating business become profitable? So And it looks like it's trending in the right direction. Right, but all of, these, all of these news reporters, it's fake. You
0: know, they're just trying to grab the headline, throw Uber in the dirt, and oh, the business sucks, like they've lost more money than a year ago. I mean, it's patently false information. I mean, it, it, this is just a technicality that they want to use for the headline for the article. So more good news from Urb, Uber's uh, earnings results. So let's look at these numbers, by the way. Lyft does not give you these numbers, okay? Just Uber does. Here is their gross bookings. Um, quarter over quarter, you can see here, now it's about $16.5 billion. This is GMV compared to $15.75 billion uh, the prior quarter. How did they get these, this growth? They actually, very nicely, break all of this out for you, the investor, to make your own determination uh, on how well they're doing. And they had 3% quarterly growth in the ride-sharing business. And they had 8% quarterly growth in the Uber Eats business. Um, And not only do, now they're breaking out for you here, the EBITDA by group. The one thing to keep in mind though, that, they're saying, "Hey, rides has positive EBITDA, five hundred million dollars." If you look down here, corporate g and platform R&D, it's basically just a basket of general R&D spend, six hundred twenty-two million dollars. Um, that they're not. They, they. I think this one, this slide's a little skewed, okay? Um, but they are providing much more transparency than Lyft is. Um, look at Uber Eats without even including the $622 uh, million dollar line item, they're basically, if you just if you just annualize that out, that means they're basically investing a billion dollars a year covering losses in Uber Eats. Uber Freight, that number's $200 million. Th- these are significant investments that they're making. Gross bookings, right? This is how you can calculate um, that 3% growth rate on rides. This is how you can calculate the 8% quarterly growth rate. Um, on uh, on Uber Eats. And so what Lyft beat, Lyft also beat, but how did Lyft beat? Lyft beat on revenue growth. Um Uber did the same thing. Look, they show you here this line, that top line in that in this middle graph here. So you had 21.6 in Q2, two 22.8 in this most recent quarter. That's their take rate. So, for every hundred bucks, Uber is taking $22.80. They increase the take rate by 1.2%. What does that do? Oh, it allows them to get this 11% bottom right here quarterly growth, revenue growth metric, right? Because if you actually just look at the GMV, Uber rides is growing at 3% quarterly, eats is growing 8% quarterly. You can't just add three and eight, okay? So um, what is the other missing variable? It's take rate. And that is what Lyft has prevented investors from really understanding. What is the growth of the total throughput versus the growth of the take rate? And as you can see, that competition is becoming a little less fierce between Uber and Lyft. We're seeing, and both platforms in both of their earnings have attested to the same thing now, the past two earnings announcements in a row which means that they have a little bit more
1: flexibility to increase the take rate. Um, You've seen both of them focusing more on revenue growth rather than basically market share growth. Uh, the telling thing, as we've discussed previously, is that Lyft no longer discloses gross bookings. so You can't really do an apples to apples comparison of basically the size of their throughput, the GMV for the market, the rideshare business. All you really have is the revenue number. And what that typically means is they're increasing revenue, but they're not growing the overall size of the throughput mm-hmm. very well. So three point six five billion dollars in GMV for Uber Eats year over year
0: quarterly growth seventy seven percent. I mean eight percent quarterly growth on this on three billion three three and a half billion dollars. That's pretty serious growth. Um, what this is saying is, if you just remember last week, we had Grubhub come out with a pretty devastating
1: response, their stock price was more than halved right. as a result of that. They basically said, we need to double the number of restaurants on our platform and we need to seriously invest in growth. So earnings will be down is basically what they said uh, because we have competitors like Uber Eats and DoorDash. But mm-hmm. well, what's interesting is you still see Uber increasing take rate on Uber
0: Eats. And... um they still have strong growth it's a massive business i mean annually this is a uh you know 12 to 15 billion dollar gmv total throughput business um and uh you know they have over 10 billion dollars in cash so when you really want to let's say doomsday scenario uber has like three
1: years of runway um And they have like nine point something billion dollars in cash still on the balance sheet. And I'm sure they could go raise more in debt or equity if they needed to.
0: They, the
1: the business is in a good position. No, they said
0: 12.7 billion. 12 point. Okay. So they're good. They raised a billion dollars earlier this year in ATG, which is their autonomous business unit, uh, which received a billion dollars from Toyota SoftBank, and, uh, one other firm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still bullish. I mean, this, this, I think just confirms. Now the irony is that their stock is down 7% today. Uh, More so if you look at, if you include from yesterday to after hours, Um, I think in general, just the sentiment on wall street is negative towards these businesses that are losing a lot of money. Um, and still have
1: very high valuations. They're, they're still in the shadow of WeWork on this one. Exactly. Even though it's a very different business. Very different business. Um, and I don't think they're getting a fair shake. Probably
0: Lyft for, for a similar point to a similar degree, but I think Uber to more so just given the strength and platform conglomerate status that they have. So um, let's look at some more underdogs. Uber kind of being an underdog in the sense that there's a lot of hate on Uber. Walmart being an underdog in the sense that even though they're bigger than Amazon, um, in in revenue and throughput, by the way, um, Walmart doing over five hundred billion dollars in revenue, Amazon doing about two hundred seventy-seven billion in GMV last year. We don't know what it is this year because they don't disclose it. But this new survey basically says that people are shopping less on Amazon. Hey, I I, I don't really believe these numbers. It it shows that. Uh, In 2017, people were ordering six or more times per month. 80% of the people surveyed in 2017. Today, it's down to 40%. I just, for some reason, I I just don't really believe those numbers. But what is interesting in here is a majority this year, 55% said they prefer to shop at Walmart versus Amazon, up from 47% a year earlier. Amazon's down to 45%. They were 53% last year. So... What this is saying, we've we've chronicled a lot about Walmart. Um, I think I think we think that uh, Walmart will be the number two overall general marketplace behind Amazon. And it'll go down as one of the best linear to platform transformation stories in the past 50 years. Certainly, Doug and Mark and the whole team there really deserve a lot of credit. They've had some departures in recent. They had their head of U.S. The U.S. business just exited uh, in the past few weeks. Probably a bad decision. Um, I think I think Walmart's on to something here. We've, we've talked a lot about it, but now you're starting to actually see it in some of these
1: external surveys, which I wanted to highlight. Right. And the, the, if you read that article, it says it's oh, we think people are getting Amazon fatigue, basically, and they're no longer excited about Amazon. I think that's kind of missing the point, which is Walmart has made big investments and big improvements in their e-commerce business by embracing this marketplace model and tightly integrating that with their store experience so that you have a booming in-store pickup business, you have much wider selection and SKUs and that experience has gotten way better. It's not that Amazon is uh, losing mind share with customers, it's that now they have real competition for the first time. Mm -hmm. So Wayfair,
0: linear company, right? This is basically the story of marketplaces beating linear companies, if you haven't caught on to what we talk about on this show. Um, so Wayfair is down 6%. This was, uh, from last week, but basically if you don't know what Wayfair is, it's a e-commerce furniture site. Um, it's not a marketplace. It's linear. They buy product, they resell product. That product goes on their balance sheet and they do a very good job of kind of contracting out with different furniture manufacturers, having very low costs, but kind of like design
1: Uh, friendly, you know, nice aesthetic. They do a lot of drop shipping, so they don't have to host everything in their warehouse and it ships directly from the manufacturer and that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, they're basically a reseller. Yep. Um, So that means that all of
0: their inventory that they are buying, right? They are specking out all this furniture. They're saying, yes, give me these pieces. I want to sell these pieces. So they're losing money. Uh, They had a net loss of $270 million. And um, they lost $151 million uh, the same quarter last year. So they lost more money than what was expected. They had revenue of about $2.3 billion. So this business, I'm not bullish on. Um, I think there's definitely a market to have a marketplace model. Uh, It doesn't mean that Wayfair needs to stop doing linear. But why don't they open themselves up to third-party sellers? Why don't they let other, say, discount furniture manufacturers or distributors sell product to their customers and invite the competition into their henhouse? Um, they seem a little reticent to do that.
1: And ultimately, I think that's going to be their downfall. Um, Certainly, they're losing A lot of margin potential, which might help make up for some of those losses by basically foregoing what are typically much more profitable third party sales rather than owning everything. Yeah. Or all the complementary products that they could be selling in addition to just the furniture
0: that is just now too much. It's it's a bridge too far. So, you know, we're really good at furniture. What about all this other stuff that maybe isn't as much of a core, but our customers still want if they're buying furniture? You know, I think there's a lot of ways that they could look at incorporating marketplace into the business. Um, so to build on that point, this company is a marketplace called Fair. This is the better version of this is the better fair of the two fair companies. And. Um, They've raised $150 million. So it's now a unicorn company. But this is really a B2B furniture marketplace, which is interesting,
1: right? But I don't think they do just uh, furniture as well. Oh, sorry, they it's do, not furniture. It's, I got confused. It's you know, yes. fashion and retail products. And yeah, they're a, they're a wholesale business, basically. They sell to other retailers uh, and connect them with you know manufacturers and other distributors of products. It's a very interesting business. Very
0: interesting business. They're selling to retailers and providing them wholesale products as you're saying around a spectrum of different products they've surpassed one million dollars in sales per day and last december at 100 million so basically what it's saying is you know a lot of a lot of investors right if you kind of say how would i value a business based on its gmv right most most companies would say what's my revenue multiple well marketplaces Revenue, as we've discussed, isn't necessarily the best measure um, of the strength of a business is revenue, right? We, it's, there's a, it's, multiple a of puzzle, it's a piece of the puzzle, which
1: is how much of that value can you capture, yeah. not how much of value do you enable and what does that network effect like?
0: So let's say their GMV, let's just say their GMV is I'm not going to say that they've got $365 million no, that's in that's GMV. That's what you would call
1: the run rate if they think we've passed... We are today doing a million in sales. Our run rate would be three hundred and sixty-five, yeah. which basically means project today forward for the right. next year. Let's say they're around
0: two or two hundred fifty million dollars in GMV
1: for like trailing
0: twelve it, months. That's yeah, probably trailing a fair twelve assessment. months. And they've got basically roughly a billion dollar valuation. It's a four to five x GMV uh, multiple, right? Which I think is is generous. I think part of the reason they're able to command that is because I think you probably see a range of maybe two to five X generally. Sometimes we've seen companies at 10, which is bonkers. But um, if you have strong growth behind them, if they're able to have interested what their take rate is off of this. Um, But uh, you know, how well do they have lock in? They have 7,000 makers and 50,000 local retailers. Um, And now they're expanding internationally. It's a very interesting market. Add it to the list of B2B marketplaces that are uh, on fire. And um, again, this is another vertical of B2B that you just, you wouldn't really think about this.
1: Um, But uh, yeah, you know. B2Bs, for a lot of people, if you don't work in one of these industries, it's kind of a hidden industry. Uh, I like to talk about, you know, in New York, you have the drive from basically, you know, Brooklyn or Manhattan out to JFK or LaGuardia. And once you get beyond kind of the main residential areas, if you know what you're looking for, basically every other building is a B2B distributor. Mm-hmm. And you know it's across you know, metals, uh, industrial products, furniture, uh, fashion, but it's everywhere, and it's a huge part of the economy, as we've talked about uh, on this show many times, and uh, marketplaces, Marketplaces are making a, a big impact across a lot of these areas. It's A billion
0: dollar company. I mean, if I'm Macy's like want to go buy this company for two billion dollars, what's Macy's uh, valuation at? like $5 billion. I mean, this company is going to be worth more than Macy's in a few years. Um, So anyway, uh, more fake news. Alibaba beats earnings expectations. True. Quarterly sales rise 40% as Chinese online retailer continues to surge despite saturated e-commerce market. Oh, you'd say, Oh, uh, it kind of seems like they beat on revenue as well. No, they didn't. <laughs> Alibaba, Q2 earnings beat estimates, revenues lag. It's it's literally like two different sentiments, right? It's like, these guys, uh, online retail continues to surge despite a saturated e-commerce market. Okay, this one says revenues lag. What's going on, right? I mean, 40% is very nice growth. Um, but they had projected It reported revenues of 16.65 billion, up 40% from the prior year quarter, okay? So when you hear quarterly growth, that's the key thing. Is it quarterly measured from the year, the the same quarter the year prior or quarter from the immediate quarter preceding it, right? So um, this is Alibaba's Q1 of 2020. They have a fiscal year 2020. So their 2019 Q4 was Q2 of 2019 calendar year. Sorry if that's confusing. Um, but their quarterly growth from Q2 of 2019 to Q3 of calendar year 2019 was not 40%. That would be insane. And the Wall Street Journal article is more accurate then. Unfortunately, they're measuring it from the year prior, this 40%, which if you remember what we were talking about with Uber, um, where they're uh, uh, that's similar to what they had, which is around
1: 40% quarterly growth compared to the year right, prior called year over year growth. Yes. is meaning you're, you're, you're measuring versus the same quarter last year.
0: So um, now what Alibaba does not disclose is guess what? Oh, this thing called GMV. Um, so their revenue is up, but their revenue is still missed, even though we don't see what their take rate is. Now, Alibaba has a lot of advertising revenue. They don't have as much of a take rate driven marketplace business as a lot of U S marketplaces, but they are starting to get into some
1: take rate stuff, particularly on things like Tmall where they have more premium kind of brands, uh, connecting with consumers versus the kind of more small mom and pop shop that you see on Taobao, which is their original marketplace. Mm -hmm. So
0: again, I mean, um, Alibaba stock is actually up after this report. But to me, it's up a little bit. Um, To me, I would actually view this more negatively than I would, for example, Uber's announcement. I keep going back to Uber. Um, Because again, these companies are primarily valued on growth. These are growth companies. Alibaba is still growing a lot. 40% year over year is still strong growth. Um, They're doing over $800 billion in GMV, by the way, compared to Amazon, which was 277. Alibaba and Amazon both regularly do not disclose their GMV. We're going to be filing a petition with the SEC about this, by
1: the way, because it's completely ridiculous. Um, But anyway. There's no standard metrics that marketplace or even platforms in general have to report on the health of their business, and it makes... The analysis is difficult and in some cases leads to the kind of confused headlines and analysis uh, you see in the news because there's so many different ways you can slice it because they don't report everything properly.
0: So if you want to uh, co-sign our petition, let us know because, I mean, I don't understand why there's such uh, reticence on behalf of the platforms to disclose what is very basic metrics like GMV. I mean, it's basically like disclosing revenue if I was a
1: retailer. I mean.
0: I'm uh, gonna. I would make sales.
1: A, yeah, I mean it's same thing, but it, because there's no standards, they can slice it the way that makes them they feel look best. So I'm, yeah. I'm always skeptical when they take away information like that when it's been there in the past because it usually means it wouldn't be favorable.
0: Right, especially when they miss. Right. right. So especially when you miss and you aren't transparent and you're only disclosing revenue, which could be, which there are many levers to to finagle the revenue that you want but you still miss right so then that to me says oh this actually isn't that good i don't know i don't know why your stock is up um so let's look at disney plus it's coming out next week and they have really done a bang up job in a good way on promoting this and um and and building up to the launch of of their streaming service so apparently this third-party service is reporting that disney plus already has over a million signed up you know pre-sign up uh subscribers it's seven dollars a month i think netflix is like 11 or 12 dollars a month
1: yeah that's i think it's the base version is uh seven or if you sign up over a longer period like a you know annual or i think it might be two years you get a cheaper rate than that so i think it can come down to about five dollars for some people
0: they're Uh, giving it away for free
1: to all verizon subscribers
0: for a year yep now interesting compare verizon to Like if I'm in AT and T right now, I'm probably wishing I'm Verizon.
1: You know what I mean? Like, because right, Verizon doesn't have a competing streaming service. They're trying to promote uh, AT and T as HBO Max, so they're not going to give you Disney Plus. Right. Uh, but Verizon basically gets to use it as a promotional tool. For and Verizon's getting paid. Yeah, they're getting paid by Disney. Right.
0: I mean, very well for this. And and I think look, I think I think we're seeing that there can be multiple relatively dominant players in this video streaming space. Why? Because there's no supply side network effect because I'm Disney and I have premium branded content, right. or I'm HBO and I can spend $500 million for South park or I'm, you know, Comcast and I can have, I don't know, whatever their show, like everyone can kind of take their slice of the pie. You can still have a relatively strong dent in the market, and and certainly chip away at Netflix's business.
1: It's a hits driven business. And it's a, the economics of the supply side are no different than we've seen in TV for years, except that you need more content to compete in streaming. So if anything, it's going to get more expensive. But it, it's going to be like it has been for a while. Well, someone has a big hit, you know, AMC had Breaking Bad and that really helped them for a while. And that show ends and they've got to figure out how do you replace that? And then, you know, the eyeballs move somewhere else. And yep. it, it's Very it's transient. Constant. Constant competition for supply. There's not really much defensibility to it. It's you got to keep churning out new content. And you got to keep putting high quality content in front of customers, or they're going to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It's a tough business to be in, and we're going to see over the next few years, I imagine, at least a handful of these that just continue to compete with each other without a you know true dominant player emerging. Netflix has had the benefit of being first uh, to do this, but even then they they haven't figured out how to make money doing it. So we'll, we'll see what happens.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they, they categorize their kind of investments in like, in video very oddly on, on, on their financials in the first place. Um, I think they're kind of, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak out of, out of uh, tongue, but yeah, they're doing some wonky stuff and they're still having a tough time, uh, on their P and L. So the last topic here is the need for autonomy. Um, This is a part of our series on enterprises spinning out separate tech companies. Um, We have seen a uh, minefield of large enterprises that have tried this. Some have been successful. Some have failed. And um, we've spoken about some examples. We've spoken about GE in the past. We've spoken about... Um, Reddit in the past, which was acquired by Conde Nast over 12 years ago. So, you know, on two sides of the spectrum, right? Both of those examples speak to this need for autonomy. And what does that mean, need for autonomy? Um, Basically, when you're trying to build a new separate tech company from scratch, or you have acquired a separate tech company, um, and you want to help that thing grow and scale, you need to give it its own space. It needs to not be beholden to the core business's processes, to the core business's budgeting or P&L, which is KPIs, which is what, and KPIs. And KPIs, which yep. is what happened to GE, which is what initially happened with Reddit underneath Conde Nast, which is where you've seen a little bit of a struggle point on um, what Walmart has been doing. But there's much more meat on that. We're going to revisit uh, Walmart It's a little bit different when you spend three plus billion dollars buying a company and then what that integration looks like versus when you're buying a small little baby called Reddit for like $20 million. And you want to nurture the thing and grow. So there's two different, this, the spectrum of autonomy varies based upon- The maturity of the business. The maturity of the business. But generally when we're talking small fledgling, new businesses, either a small M&A deal or organically building a new business from scratch. Um, these things need to be all the way on the end of the autonomy spectrum, being very separated from the core business. And so you really need to kind of think of them as having their own executive team, their own founding team, their own CEO, um, and hopefully layer in more of the benefit from the core business rather than more than than all the strings that can come from the core business. And you need to give this thing at least... Um, a couple years of runway before you seriously do much tighter integration into the core business. Because this thing doesn't exist. You're building a new company from scratch. And anyone who has built new businesses knows that a year in, I mean, the thing is basically still vapor. And so if you really start to market it and do PR around it and say, oh, look at this new company I
1: started, it's, uh, you're, it's just doing starting, fantastic. you're just starting at that stage, you know, if you're doing well, you're starting to solidify your market and your economic model. If you're building a platform, you know, you've figured out who your consumers and your producers are, and you're, you're just starting to really scale up and, and, uh, you know, put a really strong, robust technical product behind that and all that kind of stuff. So you, you need the room to do that and to try things out. Cause some things won't work. Uh, and you don't want that to blow back too much to the core brand and, mm-hmm. Uh, You know, you've got to figure things out and test it. Even, uh, you know, Amazon did this with Amazon Business, which was Amazon Supply. Now it's very closely integrated into the Amazon whole business. You know, the website, it's there on the same place. Originally, it was Amazonsupply.com. It was a separate business. Didn't do very well, but basically it was them going into the market Let's go figure a bunch of stuff out and understand B two B. Let's fail fast, and then we're once we figure that out. All right, we're going to relaunch this basically as Amazon business as a marketplace integrated into the Amazon app and website. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just one example among many of that working well. But even the big platform businesses that do this, they don't uh, try to you know smash too much of the new business into the core business too soon because they know you've got to be able to experiment and do new things. Yeah. For example,
0: if we go back to the Google video versus YouTube example, right? So Google video was growing very well way back in the day, Um, but it didn't have as much autonomy as a pure play startup would
1: because the lawyers and uh, they were, they were much more cognizant of IP issues and quality of content and what can we let people upload? So they basically ended up having way less supply than YouTube, which meant YouTube was growing much faster. And then when they acquired YouTube, they then helped bring in and create a lot of the infrastructure and things that basically helped YouTube mature and do a business that could handle a lot of those legal concerns. At the time when they bought YouTube, everyone was like, oh, you're crazy. You're going to get sued into oblivion. Right. Isn't what happened. They basically helped build a you know, more robust copyright and IP system to manage that for YouTube, uh, which YouTube probably would have struggled to do on its own. So it, there was that at that point, you know, that YouTube still is a separate business unit, you know, that runs autonomously, has its own leadership team within uh, Google, even though it's been there for a number of years and now is a material contributor to its mm-hmm. revenue. Yeah, and, and, and I, think, I think the tough part is this. So it's easy
0: to say, oh, you need autonomy. Right. But when you need a lot of money, um, then those two things kind of run counter to one another. It's like, I need a lot of money to fund this business that's losing a lot of money and is going to continue to lose money for many years. Most platforms take at least eight, more like 10, sometimes 12 years to actually hit break even. Um, YouTube being
1: one good example of that. Yeah, I think particularly advertising businesses take a little bit longer, whereas, yeah. uh, you know, marketplaces and others can get there a little bit sooner. Not all some marketplaces cases. are are made the same. Agreed. Right.
0: Um, but still, at least for the first few years. Yeah. This thing's losing money and you're investing in IP you're investing in um, validating the business model and then figuring out how to scale this thing um, can you find out can you can you find niches in the market uh, like an uber where hey San Francisco is and New York are very profitable for me these these micro markets right. but I'm investing in growth in all of these other suburban markets international markets overall the business is still losing a lot of money but that's based on very sound economic theory and proven, success in our original markets. Anyway, so how, if you are an enterprise and you're spinning out a new company, how do you get the CEO and the executive team to give you enough um, bandwidth or enough flexibility, enough autonomy to invest millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars, into a new venture that's losing money, but still then keep it at arm's length because you don't want to stifle the thing um or have the corporate entity make all these requests from the management team of the new separate business, which now just distracts that management team from doing what? Building a new company. Um, it's a very difficult balance to strike. And I think one takeaway that that I've just learned over the years of doing this is it comes down to uh, the individual leaders um, at both entities, entities, right? The core business and the separate uh, tech spin-out business. Um, at the end of the day, every situation is different, but what is that level of leadership? How, well, how involved is the leadership from the top down? These things don't work unless you have buy-in top down um, from the core business. What is the board like? What is the CEO like? What is the C-suite like? Um, how well do they understand this business? How much do they give confidence in the team that's executing upon the business? Every one of these is different, and I don't think you can go It's very difficult unless you are a tech monopoly and you can literally set up a lab um, called Google X, which for as a
1: purpose spins out companies. Right. And in that case, you also have two people that basically control the voting shares of the company. So it's a little bit different than most big public enterprises. uh, And they have monopoly money, which which are uh, governed typically a little bit differently. Yes, it is a little bit different.
0: But yes, um, outside of that, you really can't do too many of these at any given time, given the level of focus, the level of involvement it needs top down from the core enterprise to be able to give it all the things that it needs first and foremost, autonomy um, for the thing to actually try and get enough traction, enough product market fit, enough validation of the business model to justify really serious investment either by the core enterprise or uh, by outside investors. And and to get to that crossroads is a great problem to have. But to get to that crossroads takes a lot of time, energy, effort. Um and it's very hard to to be able to get to the point where if the core business did want to tailor back its level of investment or want to continue its level of investment but the but this new tech business needs a lot more investment. Um well, you have the optionality to go out to separate investors. Right.
1: That's a that's that's a very difficult point to get to. Right. Then For very good reasons, institutional funders, venture funders are reticent of getting involved in corporate ventures because they've seen a lot of these things get stifled at that early stage. And you really need to get to that kind of point of maturity where you've proven the business model that this thing has enough autonomy, uh, is going to be successful, has a dedicated team to it, it's not uh, being held hostage, a sense, to the core business, that these uh, institutional funding sources will take you seriously and say, all right, there's really something here. Uh, we want to be involved. And yes. if you can get to that point point, you, know, you have that external validation, whether or not you decide to take on that funding or continue to fund it yourself, yep. then that's a, you know, a big landmark for that business.
0: So that's, this is the need for autonomy. Okay. Now, now the next part of this is how do you make the case for autonomy? Uh, and that's going to be our next conversation. Thanks for joining us today on winner take all. Uh, we will talk to you tomorrow.